The title for this morning's talk is Tooling Up for the Inapprehensible. Strange title, I grant you. Hopefully, the meaning will become clear as we go along. Let me start by recapping the essence of yesterday's talk, which is, of course, is not required that you were here yesterday at all. Many of you were not. But it connects anyway. Yesterday's talk was uh, entitled Beyond the Trap of Language. And it emphasized the inadequacy of language to take us beyond the world of frozen concepts that we forge for ourselves, including the concepts that we are separate selves. It made the point that language has been customized throughout the centuries to keep the, the mind confined within the bounds of conventionality, of the conventional. So that being so, surely language is very useful for conventionality, but not for transcending it. Not for transcending our condition or our suffering. For that, we need to retool. Hence the title of this talk, Tooling Up, etc. Before we focus on the retooling, let me spend some time, the first part of the talk, examining the prevailing strategies that we use trying to improve better our condition. Our current strategies, while quite appropriate, they work for the acquisition of conventional knowledge, they are totally inappropriate for going beyond the ordinary, for seeing in the inapprehensible. You only have to listen to the words that just came out of my mouth to understand that. I, I said a moment ago, I talked about the acquisition of knowledge. But how to, can you acquire the inapprehensible? Right? It's an incongruity there. It's not possible. It's impossible to apprehend, to acquire the inapprehensible. We, and, and yet, we see the act of knowledge as an acquisition, as a grasping, as a getting it. Do you get it? It's apprehending. Spanish, it's even more 
blatant in this. The word, the standard word from learning is aprender, which is clearly from the same root as apprehending, catching it. It's fine for ordinary knowledge, but it also puts some limits of how far we can go. The inapprehensible remains out of the picture. I, I'm some, sometimes, often enough, very fond when I can to act out my words. So let me just uh, do that. Found somewhere this beautiful wooden box. And that's sort of a metaphor for our memory bank, for our mind, but specifically the memory bank. And see, we go around trying to catch knowledge as if we were catching bugs, you know? Caught it. <laughs> Keep it there, in the box. Another bug, another piece of knowledge, and sure enough, we catch it. Uh, problem with this, catching the bugs that way, that we, we end up with a, either a dead bug, a maimed bug, or surely a bug that's not free, that's confined. And as I say, some things, it doesn't matter that we catch like that. I mean, all our academic learning is based on that. The box, the equivalent of the box, is our notebook. We can write things down, you know, scribble, 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 whatever. The teacher said, I, I was teaching biology for 20 years, that's exactly what I did, you know. And, and it, it was appropriate for that, perhaps. <laughs> 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 because you end up with a kind of a dead biology, you know. <laughs> and. Uh, of course, nowadays there are all these computer devices, uh, handheld computers or, or full-fledged computers, and again, we store up stuff in there. And yet to insist in that method, even in situations like this, I mean, I'm not being critical of anybody here, I'm preferring about my own a journey into the practice, you know. Why do we do that? I think the key answer for that question is the Buddha's teaching of what he called dependent origination or dependent arising or codependent origination. Or, I mean, different names for the same thing. It's a teacher that reminds us, a teaching that reminds us that things that come our way 
we tend to appropriate them. And appropriate them in ways that enhance our I, our sense of I, our ego. Let, let me offer a contemporary version of that. I'm looking at the box, you know. We study as a way primarily of getting a diploma. We play sports primarily as a way of getting a trophy. I remember once I had a little trophy when in high school. I got it, oh boy, I'm so proud of it. Even sex and marriage get contaminated by that, you know. The achievement, the sense of achievement. And sometimes the wedding pictures end up in a box. There they are. <laughs> the trophy ends up in a box. Let me see what I find. Hey, you know, Jose Luis Rice, University of Michigan, BS. <laughs> I hadn't looked at it for 20 years, perhaps, or more. This was 1948, boy, 60 years ago. The parchment is still good. And I kept it, yeah, sure, in a box, yeah, equivalent of a box, sure. But I don't have a chance of showing it. And, and by the way, since we're at it, I also have a PhD, of course, naturally. <laughs> <laughs> but you see, the, the, the diploma was too big to put in the box, and very good, solid parchment, so I didn't want to wrinkle it. <laughs> and, and yes, as the Buddha explained very clearly, we do this because we feel it's going to make us happy, you know. But it does in no way diminish our suffering. We this, this tokens of success stashed in a box, they're nothing. We, we can fool ourselves, but they're nothing. The only thing they achieve is the fabrication of the I, the grasper, the, the character in this play that it keeps grasping these things. The good news is that this I, this grasper, is only a small segment of who we are. It's, it's there, yes. Lying in wait, sure, of course. I, I admit that. I, I couldn't resist mentioning my PhD a moment ago. <laughs> but it's, it's not who I am, hopefully. So it's the rest of us that needs to embark in this adventure of the tooling, retooling. How do we do that? The Buddha suggested this in, in the teaching of the Noble Eightfold Path. In this teaching, he listed eight areas in which we need to retrain ourselves in order to go beyond the conventional. 
for this of each of for each of these of those areas the Buddha referred to what's right. At least that's a standard translation. So we have right speech, right understanding, and that's fair enough. The only problem I have with that expression is that it does invite a sense of righteousness. I mean, surely it's not in the Buddha's teaching, if you understand the whole teaching. But we might introduce there this, the idea of right versus wrong in that tone of voice. So I prefer to talk about appropriate. So the eight areas would be appropriate understanding, appropriate intention, appropriate speech, appropriate action, appropriate livelihood, appropriate effort, appropriate mindfulness, appropriate concentration. This eight, I did to the fingers right. <laughs> um, I'm not going to cover all, all of this, but I'm going to focus on, on the ones that are more relevant here, the last two tools in the toolbox, which, is, which are concentration and mindfulness which amount to the practice of meditation. That's what meditation is about. Because the practice is what, uh, I mean, there may be other methods, but the method that I know of is the practice to shift away from uh, this relentless efforts to apprehend to seize things on behalf of the eye. Concentration is a prerequisite for the practice because if we have a, a mind spread all over the place, we just cannot penetrate anything. You know? Mind has to be become coherent, unified, in order to have any power to go beyond the ordinary, the conventional, be, be beyond the habits. And so it has to zoom in in some way and get focused. And of course, in, in this practice, we often use the breath as a focus, as a tool for zooming in the practice, for get the mind, for getting the, the mind concentrated. This is, of course, the uh, equivalent of the tool that, use, uh, that astrono astronomers use you know, to look at the stars. And, and in the case of the astronomers' tools, the telescope, the two very simple and basic prerequisites for seeing anything clearly is that the telescope be on a steady base, on a platform that doesn't move, and that the lenses be clean. Likewise, for our practice, we create a situation, this hall, for instance, where there's a, an invitation to 
be steady, and of course, the whole preparation for that steadiness of mind. And also, we invite you to clean the mind from what I call the defilements, like the lenses of a telescope, so that uh, there wouldn't be nothing interfering with clear vision. Defilements include um, uh, restlessness, sleepiness, uh, anger, whatever. So much for concentration. As for mindfulness, unlike the case of the astronomer's telescope, for, for being mindful, the main thing is not the object that we zoomed in on, but actually the process of observing. So we use the breath as a tool not as an end in itself. Let, let me give you an illustration. Uh, it, these things, uh, it's okay to talk about them in general. They are difficult to make concrete. And, and, and I'm not sure that the illustration I'm going to share with you can easily be gotten across to somebody else except myself, who was the one who experienced it. Here I was a few days ago, taking the Metro North to go to New York. And somebody had given to me, as a gift, a Dharma book, and I was reading it. It's a book called Pure and Simple. I was sitting at the window seat, and there was another seat next to me, and I put my things there, and there was a third seat, the aisle seat, empty. As I was reading, very focused on what I was reading, a woman came and sat in the aisle seat, and she had some baggage of her own, so she pushed my baggage towards me and put hers in the middle seat. In itself, quite a normal thing I continued to read. And then the text was very much about things arising, persisting for a while, and passing away. So, what I noticed as I was reading, that something had arisen in me when, when my things were pushed. And I had not paid attention to it because I was reading about arising. <laughs> so it was very, very, very revealing, very pleasant discovery, you know. I mean, I'm forever grateful to this woman. I never spoke to her. <laughs> because I could, I could shift and be present with the arising of feelings, whatever they were. I mean, they're not, I cannot put them in words. I was just present with what I felt. 
not covering it up as I was trying to by concentrating on the reading. And I saw it come up. See, I closed my eyes, forgot about the reading. Was with uh, that feeling that was there, and then it passed away. Of course, it was processed and passed away. There was no big deal. And she was probably quite entitled to do what she did. It was just what I felt that I neglected to be with. So that's what I call mindfulness. So mindfulness is seeing what we observe, but also seeing into ourselves, the observer, and seeing the relationship between the two. Open up to that which happens outside the confines of this self. Outside the captivity in the box. So this is one thing that awareness or mindfulness calls for, being present with the process when we are observing something. And then there are the times when being mindful, there's no particular object of observation. The object which is so essential for concentration now has done its duty and now we can let go of it and, and shift from specific objects to, say, an open space or, say, silence. <laughs> or simply stay present with a mind that has become quiescent. When in that state of mind, mind, in order to know there's nothing to apprehend, and yet there's so much to learn, we are now in the world of the inapprehensible. Not an easy thing to try to convey. It may sound immodest if I compare this difficulty with uh, the Buddha's difficulties, but uh, just to say that he, he found it difficult too, you know. This is extraordinary passage in the sutras and the scriptures in which the Buddha, he had just become the Buddha, Buddha means awakened, right after his awakening, right after his enlightenment, or whatever you call it. He said, and this is from the sutras, I considered this dharma that I have attained is profound, hard to see and hard to understand, peaceful and sublime, unattainable by mere reasoning, subtle to be experienced 
by the wise. But this generation delights in worldliness, takes delight in worldliness, rejoices in worldliness. By golly, if he had seen this generation, <laughs> oh boy! <laughs> it's hard for such a generation to see this truth, namely dependent origination. And it's hard to see this truth, namely the stilling of all formation, the relinquishing of all attachments, the destruction of craving, dispassion, cessation, nirvana. If I were to teach the Dharma, and all, others would not understand me, and that would be wearing and troublesome for me. <laughs> yeah, I'm quite, quite honest. Thereupon, there came to me spontaneously this these stanzas never heard before. You know, he just felt inspired with these ver verses, which say, enough, enough with teaching the Dharma that even I found hard to reach. Not very modest, but then. <laughs> For it will never be perceived by those who live in lust and hate. Those died in lust, wrapped in darkness, will never discern this abstruse dharma, which goes against the worldly stream, subtle, deep, and difficult to see. Those are the verses, and then he goes on. Considering thus, my mind inclined to inaction rather than teaching the dharma. We, ha we would have missed quite a lot. But by golly, there was Brahma Zahampati, one of the many gods in this uh, collection of Hindu gods. I mean, originally Hindu gods. But then, he says, Brahma Sahampati knew with his mind the thought in my mind, and he considered. The world will be lost, the world will perish, since the mind of the Buddha, accomplished in full enlightenment, inclines to inaction rather than teaching the Dharma. Then, just as quickly as a strong man might extend his flexed arm, or flex his extended arm, the Brahma Sahampati vanished in the Brahma word and appeared before me. He arranged his upper robe on one shoulder and extending his hands in reverential salutation towards me, he said, to the Buddha then, he said, Venerable Sir, sir let the Buddha teach the Dharma. Let the Sublime One teach the Dharma. They are beings with little dust in their eyes who are wasting through not hearing the Dharma. There will be those who will understand, understand the Dharma. And this convinced the Buddha. And he took up the challenge, recognizing that there would be beings like us with dust in our eyes, but not too much, who can see through. The, then 
invited us to learn, and he did so on the basis of the Novel Eightfold Path, of which I just described a little, and on the basis of dropping the compulsion to apprehend, you know, throwing this away, smash it, dump it, whatever. Not only let go of the apprehending, let go of the I. It's not that we stop knowing, it's that we stop knowing, we begin to know in a way that lets go of grasping the knowledge. Because we simply let wisdom pervade us, penetrate in us. We, all we need to do is to cultivate our fitness to receive. As we do in the practice, things come up to us. Things, realizations come up to us. And, and we learn to appreciate those. They're not boxable. Surely they're not boxable. And this is not a nebulous trance, quite the contrary. When, when we're really ready, things appear vividly for us. The upshot of that can be quite extraordinary. To, to begin with, at a very simple level, look at this. When we stop apprehending, the category of the apprehensible and the inapprehensible, those two categories vanish. They are irrelevant. It doesn't exist anymore. Of course, true, oh, it's true that old habits persist, and there's that little part of me and every one of us, or most of us anyway, that still would like to rush and catch things, you know, put them in a box. It's still there, actually. didn't break it. <laughs> but on the whole, as we shift our mental attitude, the we bring in a wondrous world in which nothing is being apprehended. And the distinction between apprehensible and inapprehensible dissolves. And the same can be said, as is said in the scriptures, about the distinction between form and emptiness, and emptiness and, and form. Form being equivalent to the apprehensible, emptiness being equivalent to the inapprehensible. In one of the sutras from the Chinese collection, the Heart Sutra, the Buddha puts this very plainly, actually in the words of one of, you know, the sutras have characters. The character here is Avalokitesvara. And he is saying to Sariputta, he says, I quote, 
Form is no other than emptiness. Emptiness, no other than form. I was always puzzled, you know, all this effort of the Buddha to teach us about emptiness. And now it tells us it's nothing new. <laughs> but of course, what he's telling us, the distinction has been erased by our attitude. But in the new attitude, everything becomes available. All we need to do is to invite the I, the me, to get out of the room, to get out of the way, to go take a walk, whatever, and let the world permeate us. See, it's midday. I sit looking at the sky, and yes, the first tendency I have, as we all have, is see what I can pluck out of the sky, you know. The clouds, the shapes of the clouds, the birds, an airplane, oh, an airplane. What kind is it? But then I'm also open to let things shift. And after a while, things begin to shift. And I can look at just the sky, nothing else. And now we just sit together. The sky and me. Sky with no superimposed features. Just the sky and me. Until only the sky remains. A sky that embraces all. The separation is gone. Let's sit for a few moments in silence. <laughs> 